The scripture reading today is from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And also from Luke 4, verses 16 to 21. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And thank you, Doug, for reading so well. Would you pray with me? Creator God, you have inspired a message in my heart today. I know this message may not be perfect, but may it be usable in your hands. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Amen. Welcome to the first Sunday of our new sermon series titled Preaching to the Choir. Christianity for Beginners. I know that sounds a little backwards because preaching to the choir is kind of supposed to mean that they're going to agree with whatever you present or they've already heard the argument a million times. I think this church is filled with a lot of great choir members in the singing sense, thanks to Steve, and in the having heard it all sense. We are blessed with people who know and are passionate about their faith. Or at the very least, they know a lot about their faith. So what could I possibly share with you that I haven't already shared, or that Sandy hasn't already shared, or that the myriad of other preachers you've ever heard hasn't shared? It was a little dumb to consider what these things might be in the creation of this sermon series. But it began to take form when I read this article in Forbes called The Counterintuitive Advantage of a Beginner's Mindset. They laid out an incredibly compelling argument for how important it is to maintain a sense of when tackling matters of industry and profitability. Because in those arenas, if you're not on top of the newest thing, you're behind and you might be out tomorrow. We live in a world that is filled with constant and unyielding change. What is impossible today could very easily be possible tomorrow. According to this article, the best way to tackle this problem of constant unyielding newness is not to assume that the old ways work, but to instead be curious. Be curious about what's happening and why. Curiosity is a new commodity, and in our modern age, it has incredible value. 
But business isn't the only arena in which curiosity has great value. In Zen Buddhism, there is a concept that I do my not called so sorry if I did but beginner's mindset where openness and eagerness to learn is seen as an integral part of the practice. In Christianity, we have a very similar concept. It's called the faith of a child. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to them belong the kingdom of God. As a cradle Methodist and a proud member of the choir that I'm preaching to, I can tell you how I understood the faith of a child. As I was growing up, the way that this concept was most commonly presented to me was that you would accept the tenets of your faith with no questions and that you would joyfully and blindly follow. I have never in my life met that child. Not once. I am far more familiar with the child of ceaseless curiosity. I once drove Addie from Lexington, Nebraska to Kearney, Nebraska, when she was about four years old. And for the entire 41-minute drive, 41 minutes, there was not a single moment of silence. How fast is the train going? Where do trains go? What happens when two trains meet? Why is the grass brown in winter? What happens to leaves when they die? How many bugs will survive the winter? It never ended. It was very intense for me. <laughs> if I were to look at actual children, actual children, and consider what the faith that they have might look like, I think it would be closer to those ceaseless questions, that endless curiosity overflowing with hope. A hope that the world might surprise me. I have often heard of faith being firm and flexible. But when I consider the faith of a child, I realize that this faith that I have and that we have has to be strong enough to withstand the flurry of questions that life stands at us, but not so strong, not so indestructible that it will crack under pressure or buckle under the weight of something hard. It must balanced with curiosity. It must be open to hope. Now there are aspects of our faith that are eternal and unchanging as steady as the sun's rise and fall. But how we live our faith has to be more dynamic. It has to move with us because we are the living and breathing expression of our faith. Having the curiosity of children allows us to see that faith through new eyes, to be curious about what we believe and how we enact that belief. We must be willing to analyze the stories that we tell ourselves about what our faith is and how it works. Because as we have seen, sometimes those stories can lead us down a dangerous path. At the insurrection a few weeks ago, we saw signs and people invoking the name of Jesus Christ and justifying the oppression of God's created children with their same breath on the same sign. Now, 
I imagine that some of those people could quote you chapter and verse using the scriptures that we found for peace to encourage violence and hatred. We must not be so comfortable that we feel a sense of ownership instead of stewardship. We must not be so comfortable as to give Jesus a sign our allegiance on it and say that it belongs to him. To never be so comfortable as to think ourselves experts or old at faith. Being too comfortable makes us less likely to see where we can grow. How we are being called to think and act differently. So for the next four weeks, I am hoping to look at my faith and maybe our faith together with curious eyes. And I hope that you'll join me. So let's start with a look at this Jesus guy and why he's the center of it all. We are, after all, called Christians, a name with enough good and bad press to make some of us wish we weren't called Christians. Christian literally means Christ people or a follower of the anointed. If we're going to claim that title, we have to know who we're following, right? No jumping in blind here. If you're going to claim him, we better know him, right? So first, I want to be sure that when we enter this conversation, that we know there are four different versions, canonized versions, of Jesus' life in Scripture found in the four Gospels. What that tells me is that our interpretation of Jesus has to be held lightly but be given a lot of depth. Because Jesus was an actual human being. The way that other people perceived him and his life was completely different based on the individual doing the perceiving. The writers of our Gospels were four different people with four different perceptions and goals in their writing. They all have a message, something specific that they want to communicate to future readers about the life of Christ. They have a goal in mind. So back to our question, why Jesus? This one person has, whether he intended to or not, started a movement that launched 1,000 movements. What started as a small group of people meeting in a home became a multi-million human and dollar enterprise, eventually splintering off into denomination after denomination, all of whom claim to be the only ones who get it right. Of course, there is no absolute right answer in theology. No one who claims absolute rightness is right. No one has a monopoly on Christ or his teachings. And I'm going to be a little harsh here and tell you that anyone who tells you that they think they do is either a liar or a fool. Tread carefully. Now, I bet if I were to pull someone who attended a Christian church off the street and I asked them, what do you think Christianity is about? I think a significant portion would give me the answer, Jesus Christ died for our sins to give us everlasting life. And that is one answer. But it doesn't have to be the only answer. Summing up who Jesus was and why we have built an entire faith movement around him isn't easy. And if Jesus' death 
was the point and the whole point of the Gospels, I think they'd be a little shorter. Having read them all, I wouldn't mind shorter in some areas. But I remember asking once a pastor of mine to just sum it up all for me, just sum it up in a sentence. What is this Christianity thing like? And she looked at me like I'd asked her to swallow a toad. She says, you can't pin it all down. She told me it's a story, not a sentence. So whatever your answer is today, whether he's the long-awaited Messiah or a man whose principles you can believe in, Christ has found a place in your life because you're here. You've ended up following Jesus in a world filled with a million other things to believe in. So why Jesus? To answer that question and to do Reverend Mary Council Austin her justice, we have to tell a story. To quote Flannery O'Connor, a story is a way to say something that can't be said any other way. And it takes every word in a story to tell you what the meaning is. You tell a story because a statement would be inadequate. And when anybody asks you what a story is about, the only proper thing to tell them is to go and read the story. Now consider this me telling you. Go read the story. I'll do my best to summarize, but I promise I'm not going to do it any justice. The story starts out humble, and it continues that way for some time. Born in a stable, surrounded by livestock, he's not exactly the guy you think of when, he's, when you hear he's supposed to be the son of God. He's the son of a carpenter and a young woman, and we assume that for a period of his life, he took up his father's trade and lived mostly quietly with one incident noted in a temple. Our scripture today is the story of Jesus' homecoming, his chance to show the community he grew up with who he is now, a teacher. Our scripture today is alluded to in Mark chapter 6, is told in full in, Mark, in Luke chapter 4, but the words, well, the people he was reading to would have known those words by heart. They're from the book of Isaiah. He tells them, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says this one little sentence. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. With that sentence, the story of Jesus Nazareth is turned into the story of Jesus Christ. The Lord has decided that now is the time. The poor need good news now. The captives will be released press need to be free right now. And with that, the kingdom of God becomes not an eternal life that we're waiting on, but something that is in the midst of becoming right now.
That is the gospel. This is what it means to try and live on earth as a citizen of heaven, trying to live on earth as it is in heaven. We pray it every week. This is the invitation that the kingdom of God offers us. And I have to say, I want to be a citizen in that kingdom. But wait, it gets better. (laughs) I know, June. How could it get better? It does. Throughout Jesus' life, he goes on and does that work. The work that he has been called to, that we have been called to. He releases those held captive by disease. He frees those who have been oppressed by death and gives them new life. He restores sight to those who have been blinded by hatred and religious law and greed. And then he goes on to actually heal the blind. And even better, he has a pretty open policy for who's allowed in the kingdom too. He invites tax collectors and fishermen and and criminals to come and sit at the table with him. And at the end of it all, yes, he dies. He gives up his life. He is betrayed by one of his best friends. A friend, by the way, that he still insisted on sharing his last meal with. Because Judas was at the table too. Judas ate too. This is Jesus, through and through, compassionate and intelligent, inspiring and humble, in human flesh, and greatest of all, he loves everyone, even me, without condition, without a remnant of a doubt. That's a man I want to follow. That is a human being I can get behind with my whole self. And I think we crave that deep in our souls. Someone that we can really get behind. Someone we can believe in when the world leaves us hopeless. When I read the story of Christ, I want to be like Christ. I want to call that our kingdom to be realized. I want to be a part of that world. The child in me, the hopeful one, really wants that kingdom, wants to know more. So if that is who Jesus is, what does it mean for me to follow him? How do I get on board? What does it mean to be a citizen in that kingdom? If we're summing it up, our scripture today does a pretty good job of explaining it by witnessing what Jesus actually does. It is a call for us to look out for the poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed, to lift up those who need a lift up, to look out for those who need to be looked out for. And that means someone's going to be looking out for you because in one way or another, we are all poor, captive, blind, or oppressed. It is to see where the need is and serve it to the best of our ability. But in modern times, it can definitely be difficult to see that need clearly or what we're supposed to serve or how. 
And I see this most clearly in the concept of all lives matter versus black lives matter. Jesus will never deny that all lives have meaning and purpose in the kingdom. Mattering would be the bare minimum. So the child in me wonders, why? Why make a distinction of some lives mattering versus others? And the answer to that question, well, it's alive all around us. Racism exists. And if you don't trust the human perspective of people who are bringing forward personal experiences and evidence, one, you should check that out. And two, we can find the empirical data reflecting the reality that it is terribly difficult to be a person of color in America. Some might even call it dangerous. It's not an argument of if. It is an argument of how much. Sure, all lives sounds correct, but in saying all lives, we bulldoze over those crying out for help in the kingdom. If all lives really mattered, the kingdom wouldn't need to be called forth. It would already exist. The world that Jesus lived in and the world we live in are not worlds that default to equality. Christ calls us to work as forces of equality, caretakers of the broken, the oppressed, the captive, the poor, the blind, both physically and spiritually blind. So if we are called by citizens of the kingdom, called to focus on the lives that are struggling and the lives that are in need of focus and love, those that face oppression and captivity are on that list. And just a quick aside, I talk about call a lot because I believe that if you have been brought here by some twist of fate or some whisper in your spirit, that there is a force in the universe that is asking something of you asking you to be with us, to live with us, to learn with us. If you are seeking out citizenship in this kingdom of God, there are no entrance exams or visas to file. You are welcome here, but there is work to be done. So back to the work, back to the call itself. If we do not fulfill this call to see that there are those who are hurting, we cannot rightfully call ourselves followers of Jesus because we are not listening to what Jesus has said matters most. Now I don't assign in the hand of Christ and tell you with absolute certainty that this is what he believes. But I can certainly tell you that there is a lot, in fact, too much scriptural evidence that Jesus cares for people who feel forgotten and oppressed. And if that's where the Jesus train is heading, I am on board with it choo-choo. Let's go. But it gets better. I mentioned that Jesus is not some one-dimensional character. He does not pick one thing to do, one thing to believe in, and forget all else. Yes, at the core of Jesus' message is this concept of love your neighbor, your poor, your oppressed, your blind neighbor, but... But 
Jesus also calls us to love the oppressor, our hateful neighbor, our greedy neighbor. He went out of his way to serve and listen to the centurion and the tax collectors and the leaders of Jerusalem and the faith leaders of Jerusalem. Jesus loves you even if you are privileged and rich and not oppressed by systemic hatred. But here's my favorite truth. This is my favorite truth of the kingdom of heaven and earth, and it is that love binds us all up together. If one of us is oppressed, all of us are oppressed. If one of us is in pain, all of us are in pain. And Jesus loves you way too much to let you stay that way. Jesus loves you enough to call you into this work for the kingdom. Jesus loves you enough to say, you are beloved here and whole here. Now get to work. Maybe one of the best ways that we can be citizens in this kingdom is to have faith. Faith like a child. Let us not be afraid of the questions that help us see ourselves more clearly. My prayer for you this week is that you remain curious, that you ask yourselves the questions that you are afraid to ask. Ask them out loud and be open to someone answering you. Be curious about how you can offer one another human dignity this week. Wonder about the life of Christ. And in all of your questioning, every last bit, know that you are forever and always will be a beloved child of God. I pray that these have been your words today, Lord. Amen.